Hello, everybody. I'm Ralph Ben Mergi. Welcome to Not That Kind of Rabbi, uh, my twice a month podcast where I reach out to different people to talk about uh, spirit and spirituality and religion and non religion. Um, it's been an interesting little while in, in light of the absolute uh, tragedy of the discovery of children's internment around residential schools. There's a lot of people who really have come out with a righteous anger, uh, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way, uh, about what religion can do and what it can do when it's not uh, in harness uh, to things that really make us a, a, a better people together. Um, there's a lot of anger right now at the Catholic Church. Uh, they weren't the only church that was involved in this. Uh, the federal government enlisted you know, different Christian organizations in the residential school system. And to be clear, the system was designed to, uh, in the words of the bureaucrats who, who, who designed it, um, to kill the Indian and the child, thinking they were doing them a great service, uh, that they would uh, make them white enough to be able to get by in this uh, colonial society. We're discovering a lot of things about ourselves in, in this process, and, and, and some of them are very hard for us to, to, to accept. But I encourage us to do that. I encourage us to actually uh, wrap our arms around these, these people that we have treated so horribly for so long. I remember when I went out um, to Edmonton to go to university at the University of Alberta from Toronto, uh, I'd never been out West in my life. I, I, it was actually the first time I was on a, a plane uh, since we came from Morocco to Canada in the first place in 1957 when I was only two. And so there I was on this plane. I remember looking at what kind of plane it was while I was in there. And we get to Edmonton and I know nothing about the West. I've never been. Uh, the person who was there to sort of billet us until we could find our own place to live is to go to university at U of A. Uh, takes me to U of A and I look in the parking lot and I see um, plugs everywhere on posts. And I said, well, what's that about? And my host said, you serious? I said, yeah, like, what, what, what do you plug in? What are you talking about? Because you have a block heater on the engine of your car. And if you don't plug the, the, the car into this, in the winter, your gas lines will freeze up and you can't start your car. And I said, well, I'm really in for something. So I thought that was going to be, you know, mind blowing enough. But then a few days into being there, where we finally found a place on the uh, south side of uh, uh, Edmonton, where the university is, I, um, I went across to the north side, to 97th, uh, the core of the downtown at the time. And as I looked down the street, I saw indigenous people walking or sitting. I saw one guy passed out in the tree planter in front of a hotel. And I looked and I thought, these people are dead on their feet. What have we done? And at the time I had long hair and a tan. And some people actually thought I was indigenous. And I could see it in their face once they thought it because they looked at me in a 
really an unfortunate way, a kind of a repulsed way. And it broke my heart. And whenever the conversation in this country has turned to the wrongs of other societies, the wrongs of other countries, and how could you treat people like that? I've just thought, what do you know, until we do this with ourselves, until we finally heal this enormous wound, who are we to speak? You know, who are we to speak when Grassy Narrows, the Ontario government still won't release the money that's supposed to go there. The federal government just did it, but the, but the provincial government won't. Um, I, I've done a lot of political consulting in my life, and I've had to tell people, um, here's a, a seriously unfortunate truth. Nobody's ever lost an election by ignoring the native uh, population of this country. Nobody. And until that changes, until you can lose an election because you aren't paying attention to Indigenous rights and Indigenous people and dignity, um, we're, we're going to stick in this thing. So it, it's been a hard a hard piece to hold in my heart, and I'm, I'm sure for a lot of other people it has been as well. Uh, but we have to get past uh, uh, land acknowledgements at the beginning of speeches. You know, we are here on the unceded territory of the... That's not enough. I mean, it may have been a small beginning, but in my opinion, it's not enough in any way. Uh, we have to walk the walk. And we have to start in incorporating the wisdom of the original people of this land. You know, I'm not a big fan of private, the, the sense of private ownership that the nation state, um, I kind of like what the Baha'is talk about a world federalism where there are no lines on the map, because this is our earth and our planet and we have to take care of it. So um, I just wanted to talk about that a bit because I, I I, I, I have carried it in my heart since I was a 19-year-old at the University of Alberta, and I still don't think we're doing anywhere near enough um, to learn about seventh-generation thinking, to learn about justice and wisdom circles, uh, to, to learn about ways of being. And I'm not romanticizing, and believe me, uh, read the Orenda. Uh, and see how people, native peoples of, of this country, indigenous peoples of this country, uh, uh, warred against each other for resources and space and did horrible things to each other in the process. Uh, no one is perfect, uh, and that's not the point. The point is, do we have the dignity to, to, to deal with each other in a way that matters, uh, that changes uh, the lands, the architecture of this country in a profound way? So um, hold it in your heart a little if you can. Uh, listen to, to that. Don't, don't push it down. Uh, don't rationalize it. Just witness it, be with it, and uh, be ready to do something about it. Be ready to ask people if there's a federal election coming in Canada. Be ready to ask people at debates uh, about what they really are going to do about this, just like you should ask them what they're really going to do about the climate emergency that's actually in play. Um, it's time we dealt with the fundamentals and not the symptoms of things that happen. All right, that's it for my little whatever I needed to say and I said it. Um, it's time to introduce my guest. He is the Reverend Drew Jake and I shall see him appear visually now. 
there he is. Uh, Drew and I um, bumped into each other at a workshop I did in Toronto a few years back. And since then have kept in touch and have deepened our friendship and our relationship. And uh, I, I have a lot to learn from Drew. So I figured I'd have him on, on the uh, podcast and we could have our conversation. How are you doing, my friend? Well, um, <clears throat> thank you for inviting me. I am uh, honored and pleased to have another chat with you. Um, a little nervous. I, I, I enjoyed listening to what you said about everything that's going on with the residential school mess. And if you want, I wasn't quite thinking that, that was a path we'd go down, but that's, I'm happy. We can. You know, it's all part of the same fabric of, of, you know, why are we bothering to be in this business of connecting to greater goods and universal, universal ideals and the idea of a creator. So is there some thought you have as, as I'm speaking about that? Well, there, there's, there's two thoughts. One, you know, struggling with these horrors and, and, and my wife and I worked um, in child protection for many years. Northern Ontario, and I think the discoveries have had a profound impact on both of us, just in terms of shedding tears, being sad of something. And we've talked about it here in, in the congregation. And, and there's, you know, there's some who will say, "Well, you know, ours weren't as bad as theirs," and, and it's it's not the point. The truth is, the Presbyterian Church was at the table very early on in terms of setting up the residential school system. Um, in the end, we had two schools, one in, uh, I think, near Brandon, Manitoba, and the other in Kenora. And, and the one in, in Kenora, there was 27 children died, uh, one of whom, um, story, he froze to death walking down the tracks trying to get home. And Gord Downey has set up a um, foundation um, in his name try and help heal, I guess. The reality is, and, and this is, it, just hear me out on this, I, this mess was not of my doing, our ancestors. That said, we have to take responsibility and own it and uh, try to move the process forward in terms of reconciliation and healing. Um, Stacy, who you met the other day, um, has decided that, that what we need to do as a congregation in a small way is we're, we're going to have a fundraiser in the fall and the, the, the funds raised will be sent to the First Nation that still has that school on their traditional land and the funds will go to you know whatever they would like to use it for but if they need help with ground radar um, that's that's where that money can go, and and my the Presbyterian Church in Canada has started a fundraising campaign, um, in part to pay for the, the ground radar, which has got to be a fairly expensive thing. My my thinking, this is me, not the church. I think as a church, we should we should offer to cover whatever costs are are, are needed to find children. I just keep thinking of. You know, there's that, the Eagles uh, wrote the song, The Last Resort. And, uh, you know, one part of it goes, you know, in the name of destiny and in the name of God. Mm -hmm. So how do 
people get to a point where they can do these things in the name of God? You mean historically? Even today. Well, yeah, even today. Well, I don't have a short answer. I don't want a short answer. I know, but I'm just, I'm just formulating. I think part of it is being off track and, and um, getting caught up in an institutional hierarchy of power and authority and believing that somehow your power and authority is a God-given right to do whatever you want to others. And that's been a big part of the history of Christendom. And by Christendom, I'm not talking about the faith per se, but the organizational institutional structure that has been around for about 1700 years, an institution that committed cultural genocide, not just amongst First Nations in North America, but if you look back through history where the church went, the cultural genocide inflicted um, over the 1700 years, Christendom is probably the, the greatest perpetrator. Of, of cultural genocide um, down through the ages in the name of Christ. Well, it's wrong. It's not right. It's not what was intended. Somewhere somebody got the idea that we gotta, we gotta get this to them and get them saved so they can get to heaven. And there's no price too great to inflict um, our opinion on, on theirs. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, in the Jewish faith, you, you don't proselytize. You don't, you don't ask people to become Jewish. As a matter of fact, if you came to me and said, I'd like to convert, my job is to tell you to go away. Lost. <laughs> right? Get lost at least twice, and maybe the third time, if you have a compelling conversation you want to have, I'll think about it. So we actually discourage it. But I do think that when you were talking just now, I just thought, but, you know, why... You know, I'm a product of being expelled from Spain after the Golden Age in 1492. As a Jew, the ancestors I come from had to either convert, be killed, or flee. Uh, and we fled. Uh, and the Holocaust is a direct result of the idea of the Christ killer as the Jew. So here we are with this idea that Everybody should be saved. I remember once I was doing a documentary, uh, uh, God Bless America, on religion and politics in America. And one of the episodes we did for Vision TV, uh, plug, it's still on Prime TV, God Bless America, um, was with a guy who his job was, he, he was called the Holy Roller, George Roller. Mm -hmm. And his job was to proselytize on Capitol Hill in, in Washington. And they had brunches for interns who actually, you know, flocked to the meal because they were being paid almost nothing and a free meal is a free meal. And being told that, you know, Christ is their savior. And when I asked him, I said, look, is it not insulting that you're telling me that I'd be better off if I was you, if I was a Christian? And he said, we do it because we love you. We're doing it because we want to save you. And he just didn't get how insulting it was that I had to become someone else and drop my own faith to be saved. So is that is there a lesser part of that in in Christendom these days in your experience, or uh, is proselytization still a key piece of being a Christian? 
Hmm. There are there are factions for whom it's everything. Um, I can only answer for myself in my thinking on this matter is that as a follower, it is not my job to, by whatever means, convert somebody to the faith. It's my job to live the teachings and the love that Jesus brought to us and set an example. And if by living a good example um, of, of being hopeful, peaceful, joyful, um, thankful, not and not, you know, there's that there's that edge in proselytization that if you if you believe all your troubles will go away and life will be a cakewalk, well, that's that's my my job is to at the most plant little seeds. But I'm not the harvester. I, you know, and just nurture and help people to grow in in their faith. Um, am I rambling, or is this no, a, no? Um, just as an aside, when I went to seminary, they never they never said that being a leader was going to be a dangerous job. And and by that I mean it's so. You come forward and you talk and you try to be open and you try to be loving. Um, you try to do what you can to see where there is a need and meet that need as best you can. Um, but the, the dark side is as soon as you start to suggest um, that, 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 that maybe within the organization we need to be facing a deeper set of issues, and accept a solution that may require turning part or all of the organization upside down. Because as soon as you begin to suggest the need for looking at how things have been done, looking at the historic mistakes, and looking at ways to change, there will be individuals who will come after you. So in, if you decide that the old way isn't sustainable, you, you take the political chance as the leader of a congregation that you're going to have people pushing back going, no, no, don't mess with success. Let's do this the way we were doing it. So how in, in, in your present iteration in Campbellville, in that lovely church that I see behind you, how do you... Um, deal with something that I know you and I have spoken about, which is how do we move from the brick and mortar idea and the old school idea of, of, of the church to, to another model? What do, you, what do you struggle with? What are you working with in that? Well, <laughs> it's a slow process. And, and just to, to back it up again, the, the, the turning upside down mm. has happened. It's called uh, a pandemic. And in the one of the first tangible things that happened in the pandemic is we couldn't meet. We couldn't gather. We couldn't do same old, same old. So we had to transition to Zoom and gather electronically. Um, and as we move towards September and thinking about getting back to doing some form of normalcy, we are going to continue to do worship via Zoom with, a, forgive me, a live studio audience. 
Tell them what they've won, Bill. <laughs> um, but but the a good position that I that we're all in is is that we didn't have to have a specific conversation about change. Um, change came to us, mm-hmm. and the need to rethink how we do things and get back to basics, because. <clears throat> A year and a half, 500, 600 days ago, one of the first things I said is with this pandemic and with this shutdown, we've been kicked out of the boat. We're no longer in the boat. We're back on the beach, on the shore. And the key little piece of scripture, without getting preachy, is at the end of the gospel according to John, chapter 21 of John is tacked on. It's written by somebody who wasn't the guy who wrote everything else. And there's a scene where the disciples, after the, the horrors of the crucifixion, left Jerusalem, went back to the Sea of Galilee, and went back to fishing, which is what, when we get crises, turmoil and chaos in our life, we have a tendency to go back to what was normal. And they went back fishing, and they didn't have a good night. And it says, there's a stranger on the beach, and he yells, well, try on the other side of the boat. And it's a neat little work with another time and they pull out 158 fish and i don't know what that's all about i can't quite get that but in the end they realize it's jesus standing on the beach and he's got a campfire going he's got some fish frying some bed and bread and they jump out of the boat and they go back to the beach and they sit in a circle and they talk and in that moment everything that they needed to be the church was there and over two thousand years layers and layers and layers and layers and layers and layers and layers got added onto it, uh, mostly by old white guys in positions of authority. And so what I, I perceived is we have opportunity here to uh, rethink how we do everything. We're not throwing the boat out, um, but there's, there's opportunity and there's a realization that there's some tsunamis coming our way. Even though we're moving out of this pandemic thing, pandemic may be the least of our concerns as we move forward in time. The other, the other image is we've been given the opportunity to be out of Egypt, out of bondage, and we're on a journey through the wilderness. Um, not making up as go along, but having discussions about each and every step of the way. Can I go on a, a diversion? Sure. There was, and here's, here's, there's, there's a, do you know about Lewis and Clark? Yeah. So Lewis and Clark were commissioned by Jefferson to, at that point, America ended at the Mississippi. And they knew there was this great untamed land, that's the arrogance. And they were hoping that there was going to be a simple way to get to the Pacific. So they sent these two guys, Lewis and Clark, out on a journey of discovery. And when they left their base camp and stepped into the new territory, all the rules, everything that applied in what was America at that time, no longer, they were off the map. And they had to figure out a new way to do it. And, and when three key things were, and I can't remember whether it was Lewis or Clark, but they decided that they were gonna have to have a circular form of government where everybody on the team, the, the core of discovery, um, would have a vote and a say in all decisions as they move forward. The other piece was one of them took their slave with them. And once they stepped off the map, he had freedom. 
He was a part of the team. He went hunting. He was a great attraction to the First Nations they run into. But the third piece is the, uh, and I can never remember her name, but there was a young Native kid, First Nations kid, teenage mother, who also became a part of the team and participated. And it was a lot of her efforts that enabled them to get to the Pacific and get back. And when they got back, what do you think happened? They rejected those people. There's a missed opportunity. There you have in history the first time a person of color had a vote, had independence, and you had a moment in time when a First Nation pregnant or a first age teenage mother counted as much as anybody else. And they could have brought that back, but the system and the hierarchy. Um, anyway. Yeah, no, it's interesting because perhaps the reason they were allowed into the circle was survival of the others, that they know they needed them. So we have to, I guess, get to a point where we realize how much we actually need each other in a society, which I would argue has promoted the exact opposite, that you're, you're to do this alone. Individualism is what matters. Individual freedom is what matters. And the collective has been ghosted into, that's for a bunch of commies, them socialists, and yet, when I listen to people like my friend Michael Corrin who talk about Christ or about Jesus, they, they talk about him as a social activist who was a socialist, who did believe that we were all in this together. So how, what kind of receptivity is there in your congregation to reimagining the the end game, the destination of what, where the church is going and what's coming up. What are people saying? Are they talking about uh, a non-building oriented faith community? What are, what are they doing? What are they talking about? Um, well, can I just address the future for a second? Sure. There's a, there's a book by Malachi Martin, who was a very articulate Jesuit. And he wrote a book called The New Castle. And in that book, he writes or said, no child can discern the face of their mother while they're still in the womb. No child can discern the face of their mother while they're in the room. And in our current agony is we're here, but we cannot discern the face of that which is coming in the future. We don't know where it's going to go, but we know we need to prepare and change how we do things. And here at St. David's, there's a great receptivity. Um, we're, not, we're not throwing the, the hierarchical structure out, but we're at the same time building uh, a lifeboat of, of everybody in a circular and transparent fashion where everybody has a say. Everybody's important. Everybody has a gift. It's not, you know, the this and used as a weapon of mass destruction over the years. <laughs> we need to do is learn how to stand and talk. And, and we invited you recently to come and lead a workshop with the first group. It's going to extend to everybody, but the first group of people who are, you know, have roles and responsibility in the church to begin the discussion of how do we move forward, how do we go deeper, how do we 
acknowledge the mistakes of the past, but how do we look at a more creative and loving way that is truer to the founder's intent than what we inherited over the years? Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, you know, because uh, all, all through organized religion right now, when I talk to different clergy that I, I have relationships, friendships with, um, there's a growing acceptance that something's not right in terms of the way it's being done. And the way they know this is because less and less people are coming. Now, this has all been thrown upside down, as you say, by, by the pandemic. And in some cases, it's, it's given people an opportunity to reinvent the idea to say, you don't have to get dressed up and go to church. You don't have to get dressed up and go to synagogue or temple or, you know. Um, but what do we do to create the sense of community, which includes body heat, which includes being in the same room together? Uh, you hear a lot about uh, congregations aging out and that young people one, what is it, 1.1 billion people, according to a Pew Research poll, no longer see themselves as religious people in the world. They see themselves as spiritual people in the world. So these are issues I know you've been thinking about. Um, what are you doing? Well, and, and, well, one of, first of all, we have to identify the tsunamis that are coming our way. Right. We, we did a little host your own radio show on Jazz FM. One of the songs I played was Terrence Blanchard, Levy's which was uh, for Katrina, right? Another horrible tragedy, um, the levees broke. We all have levees in our lives, individually and corporately. And sometimes the levees break. It's just a truth and you have to be prepared for it. So one of the tsunamis or hurricanes, I don't storm, whatever's coming our way is what you just mentioned about population aging out. If we look at the age of the Presbyterian Church in Canada in general, a lot are over 70. And the trajectory, you know, five, 10 years down the road, um, there's a lot of people won't be here anymore. And the younger and the older people, God bless them, are really the ones who support the structure financially. We're attracting younger people, but the financial ability maintain something like this is diminishing. That's one of the, so the aging thing is one of the tsunamis. Another one that we're looking at is the trajectory of the current real estate market. You know, um, where like my wife and I have been trying to find a, a place. We just, we've gone from 3,500 square feet overlooking Lake Temiskaming to 750 overlooking Broadway Harbor. We're downsizing, but looking at paying $1,800 rent a month over 20 years adds up. We looked at a two bedroom apartment recently. It was in Bronte and the cost was $4,300 a month plus $125 a month per parking space plus $125 a month for the storage locker. So you're looking at five grand a month before you can get into utilities. That's not sustainable. And you have kids, I have kids, and I wonder where, you know, that's one of the waves we're gonna have to, we're gonna have to look at. And the discussion is gonna have to be in terms of living generationally. 
and we're moving rapidly to a European model where virtually nobody owns their own house. Right. So how does that translate into church life? Well, because we all have to live. And, and you go back again to the very beginning when they were setting out, they were, they were working cooperatively together and sharing each other's burdens, feeding each other, helping them meet their needs. We're going to be forced back to that. Um, I don't want to get too lost in that, but, but it's, it's, it's one of the ways it's coming. Where are you going to help people to live? How are we going to live? We cannot, in the, 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 the climate, it ties into the climate crisis here, where uh, we can't keep living the way we're living. You know, the consumer, uh, egocentric, individualist lifestyle is burning up the planet. And, and interestingly, there's a book called Appleseed by Matt Bell, and there's a, there's a review in a fairly recent New York Times. If you go Appleseed, New York Times, and it's, it's, a, it's a, a new genre of climate crisis novels. Mm-hmm. And, and the reviewer said half measures like, like, like tepid carbon offsets and slightly more stringent emissions and, and the notion that we're still going to go to electric and that's going to save the planet. It, it's not enough. No. It's not just the gasoline engines in the airport. It's, it's the lifestyle and the concrete in the city. It's perpetual growth. It's you, you, we can't sustain it. So, you know, something interesting, you were talking about intergenerational and I thought perhaps that actual tsunami has a, a, a seed of growth in it for, for churches like yours and, and other institutions of, of community in that if you live in the same place as your parents or you live in the same place as your children, there is a better chance that all of you might go instead of one or two of you go and the, the other people live on the other 100 kilometers away and these people live on the... So you actually might actually f- find a way to recreate a, a sense of community where people go, well, I'm going to church today. Would you like to come with me? And you realize, you know, your mom is 74 and you want to make her happy and go with her and then you go. So, you know, with, within each of these pieces, there are... Um, some sparks that actually could be the rejuvenation of things, right? Right. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to identify the problems on the one hand, or what we could potentially be facing, and then start figuring out how how can we change how we live? And how can we change as as faithful faithful people? And then not just isolated faithful people only dealing with other Christians, there's an acknowledgement that, boy, oh boy, we better start having conversations with people of Judaism, with people of Islam, with the, the First Nations people. There's well, that's to- why I like Matthew Fox, because, you know, he got kicked out of the Catholic Church, um, mostly for his work in liberation theology, but also for his assertion that the, the, the church had devolved into Jesusolatry, that everything was about Jesus, and that what he wanted was a a wonder and awe of creation. So he started a movement of creation spirituality. Um, And there are a lot of people who find themselves identifying with the idea of creation above and beyond the idea of um, the teachings of Christ or the teachings of, you know, uh, Moses and Abraham and 
all of those, uh, you know, people themselves, mostly men, uh, that we should start really seeing things in a, in a more universal way. Um, how, two questions, I'll, I'll ask, the first one is just a fundamental question, which is, why do you believe that there is a God? Experience. My life, um, as I look, you know, as, sort of as I look back, um, no, let, me, let me prep. Do you know um, Jeremiah 1? No. Five, that's where he says, before I formed you in the womb. All right. Before you were born, I set you apart. I, I, I know you from, so, and I have had this sense, and it grows as I age, that, that from the beginning I've been putting the trajectory. And the events in my life have led to this moment in time. And, uh, yeah, just, it's, I get chastised often for using the word serendipity. But there is, there is a, a power, there is a spirit, there is a strength, there is an electricity that is above and beyond me. Um, I don't see, uh, you were talking the other day about the Santa Claus image, the old white guy in the chair. Yeah, with the naughty and nice list, yes. Yeah, that's, that's not it, it's about flow. And when I set my, it was really good what you were saying the other night about heart, body, mind, spirit. Those four, four things. We've been talking a lot lately that you've got to start with the heart because the heart is where God, the Spirit, Jesus talked to you first. That's where the incoming communication flows. And our purpose is, is to focus on that and close the circuit so we can move forward and evolve and be energized. Um, so when you say God, what do you mean by that word? Uh, I, I, all I know is that in, 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 uh, Genesis, it says God created them male and female in, and he used the word his. I struggle with that. I think there's a, there is a, a knowledge and a spirit and um, something that is forethought that only wants the best for each of us if we would just shut up and listen. <laughs> That's what my mother used to say. <laughs> I only want the best for you if you would just shut up and listen. <laughs> Same with the Lord God. You know, we get hung up on that word. It's just, it's, it's an experience of love and hope and peace and joy. You know, I still have trouble with the God is love thing. Because I think God is not just love. God is hate. God is, is peace. God is war. Uh, if you're going to include the idea that there's such a thing that you need, you know, to have a name for because it's so unknowable, in our faith, it's unknowable. You just accept the fact that you can't put a face and a name to it, and it certainly doesn't have a gender. Right. Yet, the scriptures are all written in a patriarchal manner about, uh, you know, the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, you know, the Holy Spirit. Um, so I, I think there's still a lot of barriers for a lot of people who say I'm spiritual but not religious. They think, I can't buy into the rest of this stuff. You know, I can't sit there and listen to a reverend tell me, you know, what God wants for me is love. Uh, when really uh, the flow is neutral to emotional life. It is just, the for some people, the flow of, of creative, miraculous 
energy that flows through the universe that seems to be able to create stars and kill stars and create, what is it, uh, one trillion billion stars in the known universe, a, a totally unimaginable landscape. Mm -hmm. And we are just a particle of that. Mm -hmm. And yet, if you, I speak to a lot of clergy, you say, well, you, this is pantheism. You're not talking about faith. You're talking about, you know, you are a tree, the tree is you. Um, and when I think all the way back to the beginning of our conversation about indigeneity, um, there's a comfort there with the idea of the creator, but the interwoven and interconnected existence that we have, the total dependence we have on each other, that, that we can't other each other, that we have to find the divine spark that goes through everything, including you know, the animal, the water, the, the, the dirt ball were on this little planet in the middle of nowhere. I rant. That's okay. I love you, Ralph. Um, Ecclesiastes, right? There's a time for war. There's a time for hate. That, that little bit is, yeah. really, and that should be burned into everybody's memory because while I talk about the love of God, which I have experienced, the love of Christ that I have experienced, I've also experienced as a leader, um, the, the, the energy vampire is trying to take me out and there's always a battle. I mean, it's not all, I try to focus on the positive. In the world, there are two basic personality types. Uh, there are those who see things as half full and those who see things as half empty. It's the same line, it's just your perspective. And I have found in my life that through my faith, I have, I've not been without struggle, but I have ultimately managed to glide through the storms. Because? Because of allowing something else to direct me and carry me and uphold me and clear the path before me. And forgive me, because there's been times when I've jumped off the guardrail and got off the path and said, forget it. But I keep getting tugged back on this strange journey. I don't know where it's going, but it's going to somewhere. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, I, I think people think that there's a lot of certainty in faith. And yet people I speak to say, you know, there's an ebb and flow to belief. There's an ebb and flow to, um, you know, I've spoken to rabbis who've said, you know, this God thing really puzzles me at times. And I'm not sure that I really feel what I'm saying sometimes. Right. And, and, and yet people are looking to me to think, well, you know, if you're a rabbi, certainly you're certain about what you're doing. Uh, and they don't acknowledge that what the journey they go on with the ebb and flow is the same journey everybody, including their clergy, go on. So I'm sure you, you struggle with that, too. Well, we all do. And there's a recognition that the age of the sage on the stage is done. It's not about me coming in and saying, you got to do this and you need to do that. Because the training historically for it to be a minister was you went to university and you had your head full of stuff and you went to small towns and you were like the second smartest guy in the town and you had all the answers for everybody. Well, that's right. what needs to happen is I want to walk with you and listen to you talk with me and we'll try to figure some things out together. There will times when I have to be alone but there will be times when we're together. So here at St. David's, there's a recognition that we all want to go deeper into the spirit to be able to mentor each other and walk through the tsunamis that are coming. So we're going to wrap up, but I have to ask, what is 
What is church going to look like in 20 years? Drew, <laughs> you ever watch Star Trek? I watch all Star Trek. I've watched every iteration of Star Trek. There will still be buildings, but there will be a realization that while buildings are nice, it's God is in all of creation. And I hope that the church as we move forward will be pot. The church is the body of Christ. It's not a building. And we need to build little bodies of community that are circular and transparent and talking and sharing and caring and think of the church more of as a life raft or, or capsule than as a, a building you got to show up at 11 o'clock on Sunday in your best clothes, shut up, and drop the check in plate. That's right. right? That's done. That's, that's the Christendom that I think is done. Um, in, because it's, we've been all been, we have spirits, we've been given spirits, we have a right to live our spirits and our gifts. Yeah. Our, 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 our perception on this end would be you don't have a soul, you are a soul. We are, we are not humans having a spiritual experience. We are spirits having a human experience. Exactly. That's, that's the, and just speaking of spirits and to circle right back around to the First Nations and having worked in Northern Ontario, in North Bay, where there's a lot of people came down from the coast to, to be educated and go to school or get medical help. And in discussions with Anishinaabe folks, the whole concept of two spirits was, that's where I learned about two spirits and the, and the native tradition that, that in everybody, there's a male and a female. Right? And sometimes the female becomes dominant in the male and sometimes the male becomes dominant in the female. And that's just the way it is. There's no, no questioning or, and, and we're struggling here. One of our struggles is the Presbyterian Church in Canada um, this year uh, adopted the Rainbow Communion Commission's um, proposal that moving from here on forward, we're going we're gonna to accept the LGBTQ community in the church and they have full and open membership in the church and can follow whatever path. You know, 20 years ago, that would have been big news. Are, are are there going to be gay marriages in Presbyterian churches? And there will be. There is an acceptance of the uh, gay people who can ordain them. Well, I have to say from my point of view, that's the entire purpose of having a spiritual life is to accept and love everyone. Because love is love, as they say. Is love now? There's going to be some backlash, and there's going to be people who are going to start quoting scripture. And whatever. yeah, yeah. Well, if you want to quote scripture, they can quote. You know, as the West Wing made famous, that if my my brother-in-law doesn't follow the Sabbath, I have the right and the obligation to stone him to death. So, if they want scripture, they can have scripture. We can all poke and pull whatever we want out of it. Uh, but, but. It's got to be, the future has got to be joyful and with a sense of humor perspective and stop taking it so seriously. Well, you're talking to the right guy. Yeah, even, well, even though I love taking stuff seriously, I also think, you know, you got to be able to see the irony, the paradox, the absurdity, uh, because that's part of life. It's, 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 the, it's the dance we're in, it's you the know? Dance. 
Well, that's why our paths crossed. Right. It's just, we're on a similar path. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Let's move yeah. forward as best we can. And throw in a little jazz every once in a while. My friend, thank you for taking the time with me. I really appreciate it. I, I, I appreciate it too. Um, I hope I wasn't too obtuse. No, that's my job. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm the obtuse one. Uh, the Reverend Drew Jake, St. David's Presbyterian in Campbellville, Ontario, and uh, a jazz aficionado to boot. So, you know, what, what could go wrong? <laughs> How could it go wrong? That's not a question. <laughs> Folks, um, thanks for listening. If you're interested in supporting us, please subscribe to Not That Kind of Rabbi. That matters. Uh, I know it's a small thing. Don't worry about it. Nothing bad will happen. If you want to donate uh, to supporting this podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash NTKR. Patreon.com slash NTKR and donate at whatever level you want once you're in the site. And uh, I'd love to have you as part of the family. Um, take care of each other. Be well. And uh, we'll see you soon on Not That Kind of Rabbi. I'm Ralph Ben Bye.